0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Mindfulness Coach and Director of MPEAK at UC San Diego, Pete Kirchmer. Tuned in to episode 276 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, slightly different episode today with Pete. So, Pete is a mindfulness coach and he was recommended to me by John Clark, who is Head of Strength and Conditioning at England Rugby and had worked with Pete during the World Cup with fantastic results. So I've been wanting to get someone on in this space for a while because it's, it's an area obviously that's in very much in the public domain with mental health awareness increasing which is a great thing but also infiltrating the performance environment with coaches trying to incorporate this in team sports, individual sports with a emphasis on keeping athletes mentally healthy, but also looking to improve performance as well. So it was great to get Pete on. So in this episode, we chat around perfectionism, uh, hypervigilance, uh, breathing training, uh, how how meditation techniques can be uh, incorporated into programs for team sports and individual sports. And then some recommendations at the end for apps and tools that people can get paid or get for free. Um, who, that, that, that may be useful in their environment. So, really interesting chat, can Pete, which I'm sure you'll really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So The Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. Head over to their website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter, at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I measure you, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I measure You, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Pete Kirchmer. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace of Performance podcast so this evening. I am delighted to welcome Pete Kirchmer. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate you uh, having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. So before we get into your background and education, experience and whatnot, I just want to say a thank you to John Clark from the uh, from England Rugby for making this introduction. So um, back to you, Pete. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself your education what you do day to day all the, the kind of the pies that you've got fingers in will be will be great Sure yeah and'm I'm imagining that most of
1: your listeners won't know who I am and because I typically fast forward the bio and get straight to the points when I'm listening to a, <laughs> a podcast I will <laughs> passionately be succinct with who I am and then get into what what I do um, so I am a mindfulness coach. And I'm the director of a program at UC San Diego Center for Mindfulness called MPeak. That's an acronym for Mindfulness, Performance Enhancement, Awareness, and Knowledge. And uh, I'm also in a one-on-one practice. So I see clients privately. Um, I work with you know, athletes, executives, or corporate leaders, and first responders, law enforcement, uh, and such. And, uh, the athletes that, that come to me tend to be either driven and looking for some kind of a competitive advantage. And sometimes it's truly that they are competing well already and just want to do Better go from second to first, but often people who come for performance enhancement, there's some implication that they are not performing up to a standard that uh, that's sufficient for them. So there's there's some kind of stress behind not performing well, and that could be for a lot of different reasons. Um, it could be you know performance anxiety, in a slump, in a plateau, uh, out of balance, kind of. Uh, just home life that's impacting their performance at sport, injury recovery, uh, th- th- things like that. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Carry on. Sorry, mate. <laughs> yeah. No. So I mean, th- so it's been a, a a great experience being able to work with uh, such a diverse population of high performers, um, because what I've realised is that they have more in common. Than they do different. All uh, right, behind the the role um, or the title that they might have, that's uh, the elite performer. Right there's a person. There's a person with a brain, with thoughts, with body sensations, with emotions, with hopes, dreams, fears, expectations, all of the above. And uh, what I found is that um, high performers beyond the obvious greatness right beyond the the dedication to training the skill they've cultivated there are some ways that their strengths predictably get out of balance to cause stress and decrease performance and I'll, I'll name a few um, perfectionism is one that you know, you've your listeners have probably heard of. Right. So perfectionism when played in balance is some commitment to excellence, right? And it can be very beneficial and, and important. But when out of balance, right, it's the setting of unrealistic expectations, unachievable results, and then harsh self-criticism and judgment when those um, you know those expectations aren't met. Right. And then the, the criticism leads to a, a degraded performance. Uh, hypervigilance is also something that I see a lot of, this this feeling of needing to be on at all times, uh, like always at one's best, pushing the edge always. Um, and when, again, this cl- has clear benefits, but it is unsustainable, right? It's, um, it's a kind of an effort that's past the point of diminishing return. Um, no one can be on at all times. This leads to all kinds of sleep issues and anxiety and poor recovery, things like that. People that I work with tend to be driven. They're willing to push themselves often all the way towards injury or burnout and then tolerate the symptoms of that for way too long. Uh, And then they, they typically struggle with work and life balance. And so, so those are the people that come to my MPE course and who I uh, work with individually. Uh, And so we can we can go deeper into the curriculum of MPE and the you know the kind of the results I get and how we use mindfulness. But I'll say just a little bit about how I got into it um, for your for your listeners. So uh, I was uh, an athlete um, at a young age power lifter, uh, football player, shot put discus thrower. And I had ruptured a disc in my back at age 16. Um, I healed pretty quickly and went right back to all the same shenanigans that got me into trouble in the first place. So at age 21, I had a second uh, spine surgery. And this time I uh, had the sciatic nerve cut in my left leg. So I lost my gastrocnemius. That's kind of a big deal. right? This is a Primary muscle for walking, and so without that muscle, um, you know, a nerve doesn't doesn't grow back when it's cut. So, you know, I realized I was going to have to reevaluate the way that I was approaching movement and the way that I was approaching my life, and uh, this inspired an interest in um, kind of personal development. Uh, in psychology, but also in yoga, learning how to to move differently. And this is 1999, mind you. So um, before yoga was cool, and for me it was... Powerlifter, right? So sixty pounds heavier than anyone else, forty years younger than anyone else, and the only man in class. So it was, it, <laughs> it was extremely not cool for me. But uh, there was a willingness, right? There was probably a desperation. Even um, I needed to heal. I needed to to operate differently. And so, so that was kind of my first step, um, to, you know, on this path. And again, my personal path and my professional path have always been um, kind of corresponding. My, my Personal path one step ahead of my profession, really, because uh, I was um, graduating college during this time of my second surgery with a degree in, uh, in exercise physiology. So, you know, I had this intention to be a physical therapist and, you know, an exercise physiologist, but then recognized that really what I What I loved most was the relationship with the patient and their story and journey of of healing and how the mind played a role in that. And so I shifted into coaching and, um, you know, at the same time, just happened to be introduced to meditation by a martial arts teacher I'd always kind of wanted to be a Jedi, you know, and a ninja, samurai. Anyways, (laughs) so this, you know, I didn't have any of the judgments that some people have. This is New Age, or this is a hippie thing. It's like, no, this is samurai. So, you know, I was pretty sure that uh, that I'd be able to move objects with my mind. I'm still working on it, but uh, it 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 definitely inspired uh, a meditation practice, which then resulted in me um, working with a Zen teacher and a meditation community going on. Long silent meditation retreats, and uh, formally educated through University of Massachusetts um, as a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, um, and uh, and just kind of uh, unfolded from there. And with a little bit of grace and, and luck, I find myself in the
0: position I'm in now. So, when you say mindfulness, or mindfulness practice, or mindfulness coach, what do you actually mean when you when you're? What's your elevator pitch? I know people kind of get a bit of an idea of what that is, but to really drill down will be really interesting to build from that. Yeah, so mindfulness is the foundation of all the work
1: I do. So whether someone's coming for stress resilience, access to flow states, improved focus, improved, uh, you know, kind of life balance, things like that, mindfulness is the foundation to all of it. And I would say most simply, we could define it as the practice of being present, right? But experientially, this is a shift in awareness, um, one that is characterized by clarity, non-judgment, openness, responsive to whatever's happening in the moment, whether that's Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whether the moment's difficult or not doesn't matter. It's this ability to really, uh, again, hold presence and do what needs to be done. Really focus on the task at hand. Um, compared to uh, the alternative or the opposite of mindfulness, which is to be lost in thought, on autopilot, distracted, um, you know, ruminating, worried, you know, all of all of those things. Mm-hmm. I think. So how? Yeah, one, one more thought that comes up is um, around the relationship to mindfulness and flow. I'll just kind of plant it briefly, and it's the reason that a lot of athletes have been seeking mindfulness is that there's a lot in common with the experience of being mindful uh, and the flow state, right? There's a there's a, an absence of thoughts. There's a synchronicity with uh, you know, with whatever one is engaged in. Uh, there's a sense of enjoyment, immersion, um, openness, access to talent, access to creativity, uh, and things like that. I'll pause there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry for cutting you off. Um, One thing that I'd really like to get into as we we go a bit deeper into the conversation is the kind of differences in similarities. You've already already touched on it between the different populations that you work with. But firstly, have you, over the last... Ten years, fifteen years. Seen a, an increase in the amount of athletes or potential support staff who have been seeking your expertise. Absolutely. Just based on the, based on the increase in awareness of of these kind of practices that can affect different, positively affect not only performance but athletes' lives and and improve things that are going on around the athlete that. Indirectly or directly can affect performance.
1: Yeah, so I, I've been teaching mindfulness since uh, 2000, and, you know, I guess 2003, 2006, kind of dabbled and started. And if uh, it, and I didn't really start working with uh, elite performers until 2014. I was kind of doing healthy lifestyle change, stress reduction, things like that. Um, but even when I started M Peak in 2014, 2015, if you were to Google Mindfulness for sports. Really, there is only a few things that would come up. I mean, there were some some studies, there were some articles, but uh, you know, if you were to Google mindfulness for sports performance today, you're going to get just pages of search results. And so, <clears throat> classes started off small in the very beginning, and now I've sold out um, every class I've taught in the last two or three years, and continue to find new spaces to increase my capacity. Right? So from 15 to 25 from 25 to 45 and then up to 50 and just continue to sell out months in advance and so so there's definitely um, a cultural shift um, and an acceptance and an interest in in mental training in general
0: when it comes to the kind of scientific research behind these type of practices what what is out there in terms of athletic populations? So first I'll say that
1: right research in general around mindfulness is, is pretty robust. I think there's something like six thousand journal published articles. About only seven hundred and fifty of those articles would hold up uh, you know with scientific rigor. Um, yeah, but but still it doesn't that doesn't discount um, a lot of the attempts that these studies have been making. Now um, I would say that there's kind of research in the area of physical and mental health. That's the most robust. That's, I would say, the, predominantly, that's where the research is happening. And that's, I'd say, for a large part due to, to funding, right? NIH and, and a lot of different governmental orga- um, organizations will will give funding um, for uh, mental health research where they don't necessarily for performance. So, um, so I'd say that there's the kind of physical and mental health research there's the neuroscience research just on the mechanism of action behind mindfulness and that's all very interesting and then there's the actual like performance research um which you know i would say some of it is uh, subjective results uh, some of it is you know outcome studies but outcome studies are difficult Right, they, they're attempted, and, you know. In performance, I'd say too uh, is divided into corporate performance, military, uh, Department of Defense research, and athletic research. You can you can find studies on all of them. Um, but you know, as far as like what is the outcome? Like, what are the actual benefits of mindfulness for sports? I mean, there are some attempts at an outcome study. Like, um, I think there's one that suggests that trait mindfulness. So these are people who just have a predisposition for for presence, rather than training it through meditation. So they're just already born mindful. And there was an association between trait mindfulness and uh, free throw percentage in basketball players. Um, there's been some outcome studies that have shown decrease in injury for American soccer players, um, Danish soccer players. Um, actually now that I think about it, um, there have been studies that link mindfulness with flow. A lot of them, right? There's been a lot of studies, all fairly small sample size and all subjective, right? Because we, we, we can't really m- measure the outcome of flow. It's just people say they're in it or they're not. Um, but there's definitely a lot of people that are saying they're experiencing greater access to flow states. Um, I would say things like greater focus, less distractibility. There's even uh, studies that show people in being able to enjoy their sports more rather than you know kind of being cynical after years uh, of doing it. Um, uh, increased optimism or decreased pessimism. Uh, is one psychological flexibility decreased anxiety um, so just to name a few that's mm-hmm. that that's kind of what's out there and I think as soon as there is more funding available uh, then there's going to be you know better studies studies are expensive mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Absolutely. So one one thing that's just come into my mind, and it was a it was a story that I heard, and I've heard it a couple of times across a different couple of different players in English football, and that's certain players who pre-game would be so nervous and so anxious about the game that they'd, they'd be sick, and maybe there's there's different um, there's a continuum there of of. Um, that been probably the far end of, of that kind of state that they, these players get themselves in. But for someone like that who is on somewhere on that continuum of um, where it kind of nerves pretty crosses into anxiety, is there any specific methods that you teach that can that can help that? Um, in particularly, I'm just thinking of trying to trying to make it as specific for coaches as, as possible.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I can actually speak to some of the science,
0: <clears throat>
1: and then uh, and then talk about how to actually practice it. Absolutely. And so um, there's this topic of interoceptive awareness, and uh, maybe I'll frame this up with uh, another study that was done on the Peak program in 2014 with the US Olympic BMX team. Because a lot of this had to do with anxiety and uh, the neural correlates of resilience. And so um, the, uh, the, the BMX was featured in the Olympics for the first time in 2008. And they won three medals. I think it was like two silver and one bronze or vice versa. Uh, but they did pretty good. And then in 2012, um, despite their coach reporting them being superior uh, as far as their conditioning and training and how they'd done in practice, physically, uh, they didn't win any medals. And so their coach read a paper by a neuroscientist at UCSD named Martin Paulus. The paper was called "Cracking the Athlete's Brain," and you know, and it was about this kind of performance anxiety and what what gets in the way of an athlete doing what they've already proven they can do, but like, but they just can't access. Right? And uh, the work that had been being done previously at this lab was on other high performers. It was uh, elite adventure racers, you know, the types that would be doing 72 hour, you know, hike, you know, trail running, kayaking, mountain biking, and uh, our, our Navy, U S Navy SEALs. And they were putting them in MRI Um, And then testing what their brains would do compared to control groups when under what's called an interoceptive load. And so interoception is subtle body sensation, hunger, tickle, thirst, itch, uh, perception of heart rate, breath rate, things like that. Any kind of just subtle um, body sensations that you can feel while you're in stillness or that would be internal. And so an interoceptive load um, was... uh, was breath restriction, right, universally panic-inducing, and so they wanted to look at what would happen when they showed a, like this yellow light, which was correlated with, um, or kind of a warning that a few seconds later breath would be restricted. So they looked at like how does a elite performer, like how does their brain anticipate an upcoming uh, challenge that's anxiety-provoking? What does their brain do while they're being anxious, um, when the breath is restricted, and how do they recover? And so what they found was the neural correlates um, to resilience were in the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula. And so when the control group um, was shown the yellow light, their brains didn't do anything at all, nothing registered. And then when their breath was restricted and they felt this performance anxiety or what would be kind of a related to, this was you know, heart beating fast, tension in the chest, racing thoughts, you know, you know, feelings of fear, uh, which is how these athletes that you're describing would feel you know, before needing to perform. Um, the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula, the activity spike, right? it goes, it goes really high. Uh, and then it stays high. They don't recover very quickly at all. And actually, they they stay anxious. But in the elite performers, uh, it was shown that when the yellow light was shown, those same brain regions already started to elevate, preparing themselves for the oncoming challenge. Um, And then once the breath was actually restricted, it still elevated a little bit above that, but it was not a panic like the control group. And then once they had their breath back, they recovered immediately. Right. And so this kind of suggested that the neural correlates of resilience were the way that the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula respond to an interceptive load. Um, and what we also found was this, this was a trainable feature through mindfulness. So the U.S. Olympic BMX team came in already looking resilient in the MRI pretest. But after taking the eight-week MP course, they showed even further improvements. Right? The brain did, did even better uh, um, on this same test, showing that there's really no ceiling effect to the for the ability to train resilience in the brain. Um, further research has also shown that you can, um, through mindfulness, help non-resilient people start to um, perform or uh, their brains will perform more like that of an elite athlete when under the same interceptive load, breath restriction, so that we can actually train the brain to be resilient and less less anxious or resilient in the face of anxiety. So that's so that's some of the kind of background research on performance anxiety. And then how that would actually translate out of the lab and onto a field would be this ability to um, stay present with the difficult sensations, right? Typically, when people get anxious, they spiral. The there's an actual sensation again: tightness in the chest, breath rate um, increases, heart rate increases. Um, maybe there's some sweating, and then the mind gets a hold of that and tells some story about how it's all going to go south, and you're not going to be able to do it, right? And so we call that like the performance story, some negative narrative of, of the whole thing, uh, right? And then this is just this downward spiral from there. And so those who have practiced mindfulness can recognize this moment as a temporary moment um, and as something that's workable. So they. They can feel the anxiety. Mindfulness doesn't make anxiety go away, but it does enhance the response to it. And so there's the ability to kind of soften around the difficulty, which is what the elite performers did in the MRI. Right? Breath restriction is still, it just sucks no matter what. But there's kind of this acceptance of it. There's, a, there's like a willingness to go with it. You're like, yeah, this is hard, but here we are. Kind of an attitude towards the sensations. Um, and then there's the ability to stay present. Some of will just say, feel your feet, you know, feel, put your attention in your hands, anchor to your senses, notice what you see, right? Anchor into hearing. Um, and when, when one is trained to anchor their attention in the senses, it's a pattern interrupt for rumination or right? the thinking mode of the brain and the sensing mode of the brain are two different regions or right? they can toggle. Yeah. But Uh, if you can train yourself to stay in your senses, then you won't be lost in the thoughts about the anxiety, which is really what makes it worse. That's what makes it hard is believing the anxiety is a true threat versus seeing it as this temporary discomfort that will surely pass. And that can be, you know, maybe it doesn't go away, but it won't be, um, you know, it won't be overwhelming
0: if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So on a, day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month basis, what does that training look like to get someone from the control group response to the elite performer response?
1: So I'll make a distinction between mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. Okay. So mindfulness is a way of being that can be practiced at all times. You can be mindful of doing the dishes. It just means that you're being present. You can be present to your spouse. You can be present to a meal. You can be present to running. And then there's meditation, which is being present while in stillness and silence, while doing nothing. Um, And so the meditation is this practice that usually begins with awareness of um, breath. Breath is this stable object. Um, it's not a controlled breathing. It's just aware of the natural breath that already happens um, and an ability to concentrate on that. Once there is stable concentration on the breath, one can open up um, and kind of, uh, this will sound, um, how will this sound? This won't make a lot of sense to people who haven't meditated because uh it's experiential, right? This is not a concept that can be understood. It's like trying to explain, you know, sex to a virgin, right? I, you can use words, <laughs> right? But, yeah, but absolutely. What does, yeah. It, what does it really mean, right? So, yeah. uh, so I'll go ahead and say it anyways. Like, there's this experience that's available that is opening up as awareness to anything that's arising, meeting it with equanimity, right? Thoughts, sounds, sensations—they all arise in the same place. It feels like. Uh, on one level, for the uninformed, that thoughts and sensations are on some inside, and sounds and sight is on some outside. But eventually, there's this recognition that all all experience arises in awareness, and one can just hold and kind of exist in this space of awareness for longer and longer periods of time. Again, with this attitude of, of equanimity, and so this is what this is what meditation cultivates this is what's actually training the brain. And the athletes, the BMX study did this, I want to say like a half an hour a day or 45 minutes a day, six days a week. Um, and that's a pretty high bar. There's research that shows that you can, you can do less and still get benefit. Um, but, but that tends to be kind of a standard uh, dose for, for the research. And so they practiced a series of these meditations, one called the body scan, which is really focused on body sensations to the exclusion of anything else, um, staying present to just the, the, the pulse, the tingle, the throb, the, the contact, the pressure. Right. So that trains a certain brain capacity. And then we do another meditation called awareness of breath. That's focusing on the single stable object of the breath that also uh, develops a certain brain region. And then this uh, open awareness practice This kind of, again, resting as awareness, not trying to focus on anything, but being present to everything as it comes and goes. Um, And so those are those are three primary uh, meditations that are taught in most mindfulness courses, um, including MMPek, in addition to usually a mindful movement similar to yoga uh, with the intention really to just be present to the body in motion rather than to burn calories or build flexibility and all that all that stuff. Um, so so yes, yeah, so a meditation intervention is what would lead to all of the scientific benefits that I would suggest.
0: So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Pete, hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, a really interesting part two, we start off by discussing some of the things that Pete has come up against in actually implementing some of these techniques in individual and team sports. And I also put to Pete around the need for teams and performance coaches to justify certain things that go in their program and actually the performance benefits when things like this are really difficult to quantify their impact. So we have a little chat around that as well as some apps and resources out there that you could potentially tap into to, uh, to learn more about this area, but also to use in a more practical sense to uh, implement some of this stuff. So a really interesting part too coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kangatech. So born out of 10 years of research and development, Kangatech is the world's most advanced injury prevention platform. So most recently, Kangatech has released its KT360 testing and training platform, which consists of a portable and adaptable, easy-to-use fixed-frame dynamometry system that allows accurate and reliable measurement of isolated neuromuscular strength, endurance, and control. Advanced software analytics allow sports specific athlete profiling to understand injury risk, and guide prescription of appropriate intervention. Kangatech has developed over 35 isometric and eccentric testing and training protocols spanned across the whole body. With KT360, you can test one muscle group bilaterally and that can be done in under 30 seconds with real-time biofeedback and immediate automated reporting designed to motivate the athlete and inform staff of outcomes instantaneously. To find out more about Kangatech, email how at kangatech.com visit their website at kangatech.com or check them out on Twitter at kanga underscore tech. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimise performance. OmegaWave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualised in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. OmegaWave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about OmegaWave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. Is there an optimal timing for this in terms of just thinking of a, whether it's a business man or an elite performer? Is there an optimum timing of this, of where this happens during the day? Is this before the potential event? Is this after in, in, in preparation for the next one, given that it's just gone? Is there any guidance around that? So
1: training for event is best when it's actually life training. Um, right, it, it, they, we call it emergency training. You know, like let's meditate right before the big event. But um, you know, a, a phrase that I love is, "It's hard to learn how to swim when you're drowning." Mm-hmm. Right, and so if yeah. if, if your yeah. only time you're going to meditate is right before something panic-inducing, uh, good luck. It's not going to work. <laughs> so, so we encourage people to um, have a daily practice, and then most easily start to integrate many mindful moments into their everyday life and into their performance event. And so a meditation practice, there's a little bit of research that shows that you're more likely to do it first thing in the morning, and that's just real pragmatic, right? The day has momentum, and it's easy to... You know, say I'll do it later, 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 and never do it. Um, but but whenever meditation works for you, uh, starting you can start small, ten minutes, build up to a thirty minute practice, which is pretty pretty good. But even even five minutes is is a fair play. There's no research that shows that, that there's a benefit, but it's uh, it's the toe dip that can lead to a bigger commitment. Um, so some kind of a regular practice um, done when you're not stressed. And then starting, we call them informal mindfulness practices, starting to decide where you might insert just a few mindful breaths um, or an, uh, the intentional opening to your senses during your performance. And again, this might be in the beginning, uh, might right before, right after, at a halftime, in between plays, You know, when you're most relaxed. Um, and then you would start to bring it into more difficult moments. Um, and that's kind of how it progresses. I, I'll say that there's not any real good, um, proven model of how this has to go. Right now, we see that mostly, you know, it's even though there are some teams that are doing it as a team, it's mostly facilitated by a sports psychologist with a background in mindfulness who. Offers the practices to an individual who's struggling, who does it on their own at home, and then is accountable to the psychologist. Right? Um, that's how. That's how mostly we're seeing it. But there are teams who are doing it in the dugout. They're doing it in the locker room, either before or after a practice. Um, you know, the NBA just was spon- sponsored Headspace, which is a popular app. So I know that there's a lot happening there. Um, you know, app based, um, but but still mostly it's people
0: practicing on their own that was actually my next question was have you seen any any have you heard or seen any examples of people doing it in groups but one thing that I've anecdotally heard was was one guy who's been on the podcast who disguised this as or paired it with breathing exercises pre-training so and then and then some of this stuff that we've you've just spoken about was integrated within that 10 minute um 10 minute breathing training so that could potentially be something with a big group that is difficult to imp- where it's difficult to implement this kind of thing could be something where it's a little bit more disguised and
1: yeah the people yeah. that don't
0: know much about
1: mindfulness are still in the kind of the the place where they have to disguise it yes <laughs> because you can't speak yeah. it intelligently enough about what it actually is to overcome some of the very predictable you know, resistances and skepticisms, and so they'll have to name it different things. They'll try, you know, they'll. But there's a there's a cost in that. Really, reducing mindfulness to a breath technique is a very limited view on its full capacity. So, as a place to start for a skeptical team and maybe an
0: untrained psychologist, um, yeah, like I, I see that all the time. What are the? I mean, we could. You could probably ask anyone, they'd probably come up with them, but what are the typical barriers for people and why they wouldn't undertake this? So, you know, I I guess
1: my course offered through UCSD, and then I also um, have a contract with our Department of Homeland Security and our Navy Special Warfare, the SEALs and some corporations. So when when I'm brought in, typically there's already a fairly decent degree of buy-in. People aren't supposed to be Cold to come. Um, uh, so, you know, I don't get a lot of pushback or resistance, uh, but but some that I've had in the early days or some that I hear about, or that there's some perception that it may conflict with their religion, um, that. Uh, really? You know, that it's- yeah, like it's a Buddhist thing.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Well, it's awesome. just Buddha, you know, it's but that's an interesting like I would say that like Kenyans are the best at running, but running is in no way inherently Kenyan. Right. So like <laughs> yeah. Buddhists are the best meditators, but it doesn't have to be like inherently Buddhist. It's yeah. it's completely secular practice. Yeah. Um, so I've heard that more in corporations, uh, depending on what part of the, the you know, the country I'm in. Um, you know, and then there's, I would say more than there is skepticism or resistance to the idea that it would work. Um, I would say now more and more, the people that I'm around actually want to do it. They've read enough about it that they see that there's clear benefits, um, there's really not anything to push to push on, you know, push back on at this point. They just have a hard time integrating. It's radical. It's different, right? So, like sitting around and doing nothing can be a hard sell for, especially like an entrepreneur who has, you know, a startup and completely leveraged, you know, all the cash that you know, that they have, you know, and this feeling like I need to do everything I can first thing in the morning and then go until I drop to like stop and do nothing especially when there's a learning curve, you're like any sport, you're not going to be a good meditator in the beginning. And so getting over the kind of the hump, uh, putting in enough time and being able to commit to it for long enough to see benefits, which may be, you know, m- may take a month of, uh, of practicing at least three or four days a week. Um, so I would say that that's, that tends to be more of the barrier that I see. It's just their ability to make time and space and patience to,
0: to let it work mm-hmm. so as as you may know in sports performance we're in a world of measuring everything measuring impact or trying to measure the impact of everything and people get nervous when that is more difficult and it's, 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 it's more difficult to put on a bit of paper on a report and say well, you've given up half an hour of the team's time with me to do x and it's got this result. Is that is that another barrier that you've come up against? Um, I, I don't have an
1: example okay. of that being the case, although I know it would make my job easier if I had more research. Right. So um, I think there's enough studies out there that suggest benefit for people who are gonna be interested to be interested. Um, you know, and I also have the aspiration to do more studies on the MPE program, and uh, I'm very encouraging of my colleagues who are also at different universities doing studies, and, um, and and so yeah, I think that's how I'll answer that.
0: Okay, no, no worries. So you mentioned Headspace and its affiliation with the, um, was it the MBA that you said that yeah got in? Yeah, okay. And John had mentioned when he first made introduction that they'd you've recommended an app to them for them guys to use while they were away on in the World Cup. So just on that, what resources are out there for people who don't have the, the luxury to tap into your knowledge or your expertise or people like yourself? What resources are out there for people to introduce this with their teams or with their athletes or, like I said right at the start before we hit record, with themselves because of the nature of sports performance from a, from a coach's standpoint, not just a player's standpoint?
1: Yeah, we're lucky. You know, a lot of the apps have just come out in the last five or six years and there's a lot of them and there's some that are pretty well done. Um, And so I would say most accessible would be something like Headspace or like the 10% Happier app Um, for more people in the industry. So people who may have already had an introduction to mindfulness, um, my favorite one is the waking up app by Sam Harris. I would say that it's the most intelligent uh, and interesting one from my perspective, but it's also a little more advanced. So, um, you know, depends on where someone is coming from. If they have a psychological background already, uh, that that's probably the one I'd recommend. If they're truly a novice to anything mental performance, then I'd probably give them 10% Happier or Headspace. Insight Timer is also a pretty good one, and your listeners can actually search UCSD Center for Mindfulness, or actually you can search my name, Pete Kirchmer, and uh, my My content is up there, guided meditations for free. Um, And there's a lot of free meditation. But what that also means is there's takes a lot of time to weed through (laughs) what what might not be great uh, quality content. Um, A lot of these apps also, beyond just having um, guided meditations, also have kind of informational talks. So that people can kind of understand some of the science and some of the application and philosophy a little bit better. Um, But I always encourage people to practice first and learn second or learn just enough to overcome resistance, learn just enough to be motivated to do it. But then do the practice. Otherwise, you know what I find is people like the concept of mindfulness, and then they'll come kind of be like, "I've read ten books about meditation. <laughs> you know, I'm telling all of my clients and I'm telling all of my patients, but you know, I, they don't meditate, yeah. right? So, uh, so I, I, it's like reading a bunch of books on exercise physiology, but not exercising. Um, it's not the
0: point. Mm-hmm. I think it was inside inside timer that. That John had said that then guys had implemented during the World Cup, and it was it was really beneficial to them. I think he may have used my meditations on there, and I also have uh, so I've got
1: I think there's a fifteen minute and thirty minute uh, versions of my meditations that I use in the MP course on Insight Timer. But if they if your listeners go to SoundCloud app and put in either UCSD Center for Mindfulness or Mpeak they will also have access to a 5 and 10 minute
0: version of all of my meditations I'm writing that down so I don't forget one thing I didn't actually touch on was and I think this is something that I was, um, I was really looking forward to chatting to you about and that's the differences between how people in business whether that be CEOs or you know people high up the chain who are in very stressful situations and a lot of pressure day after day after day, much like high performers, um, elite athletes. Are there any similarities or differences of how these two populations react to these kind of practices that we've that we've um, that we've discussed? Yeah, um, let me
1: think about that for a mm. second. So I I, I want to answer that they're more in common than different. Really, just like. A person who needs to perform well under stress, like on a real mental level, is, is somewhat predictable. Right, the, the the context of their situation, the story they're telling about it, their particular drama, of course, is personalized. But you know, from the meta view, um, the thoughts and emotions that accompany and physical sensations that accompany you know uh, intense demands are, are predictable. Um, so more in common, um, but let me let me see. Uh, I would say that the way that people commit to the practices have more to do with the amount of stress they're under, okay. uh, than, than really the, like the domain of their performance. And so, um, like an athlete that is truly suffering, or an executive that is truly suffering, tends to have uh, less resistance. They're more willing to try new things than someone who just read about it and they thought, "Oh yeah, changing the brain is cool," and you know, maybe I'll give it a shot. Those people don't stick around as long, right? Um, because they're just not patient enough to to do it long enough to really see the big shifts that are absolutely available. But someone who's suffering they're usually willing to put in the time. Uh, and so I see this in the, you know, kind of law enforcement, military populations as well, um, right? Pre-deploy- uh, pre-deployment, there's a lot of stressors. And then coming back with, with you know, all these many traumas that they've experienced, um, even though there's, you know, there's the, the tough male culture that, uh, you know, does not uh, really make room for emotion, um, I would say that people are more and more have been opening up to it because there's no place else to go, right? Anxiety and depression, suicide, alcoholism—you um, know, those are those are difficult things to deal with. And so, so yeah, I would say that that seems to be the common denominator around who really
0: gets it and is willing, um, and and who's not. Do you think? I mean, we spoke about this earlier, but do you think this? The awareness of the, the the awareness about mental health is only gonna increase the adoption to this type of practices especially in like we've, we've touched on in business and um, elite performance yeah I would say that we're really on the cutting edge of something you know the conversation
1: around mental health in, in all of these domains, we've been talking about law enforcement, uh, military, athletics, they have, uh, an old school culture. I'd say that law enforcement, military, and athletics are actually a little bit behind corporations. Um, at least, the, you know, I'm in California, so that might be yeah. a biased uh, <laughs> opinion. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like with the t- Silicon Valley tech and, and, but they're fairly progressive. Um, and there are definitely progressive, um, you know, uh, Again, I'm I'm working with Navy SEALs and Department of Homeland Security uh, and different athletic teams, but um, the acceptance seems to be, um, it's it's coming, right? There's more and more conversations um, that people are having with their sports psychologists. You know, I've worked with... um, the sports psychology department of the New Zealand, Canadian, and uh, Swedish Olympic teams. You know, so these are groups of twenty-five sports psychologists working with you know all their Olympic athletes. And uh, the first group was the Swedish Olympic um, team that I worked with, and this was like two thousand and fifteen or sixteen. So a little bit earlier on, and I was just in New Zealand and Canada last year. So um, even the difference between how the psychologist reported. Um, the relationships with the athletes and the willingness for athletes to seek them out in 2016 was very different than in 2019, right? There's, there's a different narrative around that. There's a different willingness. Um, and, and there's a different conversation, at least I can say in the U S around mental health, still a long way to go.
0: Uh, and yet happening quickly. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So one last thing cause I said I'd I'd um I'd keep me to the hour and I'll I'll try my best to do that. Where is and we, you may have just answered this exact question, but where is this area going? What's what's the next thing that's going to going to come along in this in this particular area across all the populations discussed.
1: Yeah, all right, that's the the billion dollar Question, you know, and as a you know, as someone who's in the business of mindfulness, it's a it's a question I ask because I want to be ahead of the curve, but it's also something that I'm trying to just um, allow to um, kind of reveal itself and kind of happen organically without forcing. But it it feels like there's a trend towards more acceptance. I know that there is a big initiative around mindfulness in schools, um, in public schools, even. You know, from kindergartners to high school. And so I think we are, um, familiarizing a younger generation that's coming into the workforce who are coming into, you know, the to ability to be pro from high school athletes. Um, and I think that they're going to have a very different, um, view of mental health and, and mental training. I'd like to say that it's, uh, the same as, as physical fitness, you know, in the, in the early days, you know, somebody who'd run in the sixties was kind of like weird. Right? Like, <laughs> Who are you running away from? Right. Or it would only be for like, it would be like Olympic athletes, pro athletes and military were the only ones that engaged in systematic, regular physical training. Um, but it wasn't popular cause it just wasn't understood and it just wasn't a movement. And so, um, I feel like, Mindfulness could be tracking that, and that mental training will be just as accepted and part of a of a program as physical training would be. Um, it sure does make sense. Um, that said, the argument against it that I can make up in my own mind is that meditation doesn't have something that physical fitness has, which is endorphins and vanity appeal. <laughs> right? So, so there's like a direct, um, you know, reward for physical training in the, in the form of, you know, vanity and, and endorphins. Um, And the, you know, meditation may be relaxing, but it might not be, right? It's again, we're just being present to whatever's there. Sometimes we're relaxed and sometimes we're not. Um, And so there's not the, you know, there's not that short term payoff, um, quite the same as physical fitness, but if people are patient enough to give it a good solid month and people who take my MP course, I offer a six week virtual follow-up where all the participants get together on a conference, um, video line. And we discuss what it, what it takes to make, you know, to make a meditation practice stick, and how to integrate to our areas of performance. And so, the ones that are willing to, to do it for the long run, I think they're going to see the benefits. And if the science keeps coming out, and if enough people um, you know report these benefits, then yeah, my hope is that it's uh, it's just a regular part of uh, the education system. Uh, it's the regular part of athletics and that we see meditation groups like I do in the companies I work with in Silicon Valley being more dominant in all companies around the world
0: amazing well thank you very much Pete really do appreciate it one last thing where can people I know you've mentioned it a couple of times but website social media where's the best place for people to get to know a little bit more about you and the kind of things that you offer
1: Yeah. So my website is mindfulnessbasedhealth.com and there's information on my three-day intensive on that, uh, website or the UC San Diego Center for Mindfulness, probably easiest just to Google it. Um, but the website is mbpti.org. Um, and then you can kind of navigate towards, uh, towards the MP and find, um, information on my upcoming courses in san diego
0: awesome are you a social media guy or not not much
1: we've got an mpeak facebook page uh and i will you know i will post kind of the latest performance related research and articles on that um with (laughs) as as efficiently as i
0: can (laughs) no that's that's great that's great well thank you very much pete really do appreciate it and um really excited to see this area and where it goes especially in the in the realm of sports performance. Thanks for letting me share mindfulness with your audience. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 276 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoy the chat with Pete. So big thanks to Pete for giving up his time and talking all things mindfulness and how some of these techniques can benefit the, uh, the high-performing athlete. So also big thanks to... Kangatech, Omega Wave, Hawking Dynamics and I measure You for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without them guys so make sure you check them out if you're in the market for any of their products. So some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, some big hitters as well uh, which I'm really excited to bring you so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.